Hello and welcome to Brahm Show. This is Brahm and we are in the middle of the series Why Christians Must Be Right. Written and read by Brahm French. We're on chapter 8, Right to Bear Arms. There is a dance that the left plays with our liberties. They take some portion of our liberties away, we complain, and they give us back a little. We rejoice because we get a little liberty back and forget about the liberties that were not returned. It's like a magician who asks you for your watch and wallet so that he can make them disappear. We become upset so that the magician magically makes the watch reappear. Now we are appeased because we have our watch back and we have entirely forgotten about our wallet. Giving us back some of the rights that they took away is not enough. I want all my rights back. Calling them privileges is a misuse of the term. They are not privileges, they are rights. By changing the word, they change the argument. For instance, it should be a right to drive, but now we call it a privilege. So if driving is a privilege, the government can determine who can and who can't drive regardless of any criminal activity. What I mean is, if you were at fault in an accident, you could lose your right to drive. But now they can take away your privilege to drive for whatever reason they please. Those in power on the left have done the same thing with guns. Now it is a privilege to be able to bear or carry arms. The Constitution did not call it a privilege, but guaranteed it as a right. I've heard some Christians question whether or not Jesus would have had a gun or would have let his disciples carry guns. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 51, the Bible says that one of them, disciples, stretched out his hand and drew his sword. John said in chapter 18, verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant. Peter had his own sword. At one point, Jesus sent the disciples out to minister in the surrounding area, and he told them not to worry about money or what they would say, or even about their shoes. In the book of Luke, he asked them if they lacked anything, and they said that they lacked nothing. Then Jesus said, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it. And likewise his scrip, and he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. That's paraphrased from Luke chapter 22, verses 35 through 38. Did you catch that? Jesus told his disciples that a sword was more important to them than their garments. Jesus gives another illustration. Luke chapter 11, verse 21. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. Jesus gives the answer to peace and security, arming the homeowner. Gun control opponents, proponents miss a small detail in their argument. By making laws that take the guns out of the hand of the law-abiding citizen, we guarantee the criminal free reign with his. We, in effect, bind the strongman of the house and announce to the lawless the vulnerability of the innocent. However, if we keep the strongman armed, his goods, they will remain in peace. The founding fathers of this nation laid a foundation that still holds to this day. The Constitution contains an amendment that guarantees citizens the right to keep and bear arms. Why was this amendment placed into the Constitution? And what was meant by a well-regulated militia? And what would the elimination of the right potentially mean to our society? 
Was this right to bear arms meant only for the soldiers of the militia? Or was it meant for the people in general? What is the significance of an armed or a disarmed populace? Using history as a point of reference, we will reevaluate the right to keep and bear arms. On March 5th, 1770, a standing British army was surrounding, surrounded by approximately 400 Bostonians. These Bostonians were already enraged due to a decree by the British government stating that the people must furnish quarters to British soldiers. These colonists began to antagonize the British redcoats, saying things like, Come on, you rascals, you bloody backs, you lobster scoundrels, fire if you dare, G.D. you. Fire and be damned, we know you dare not. They were so close they struck the soldiers' muskets with clubs. Before the end of the day, three Bostonians were dead and two more would follow them to the grave due to the eruption of violence on that fateful day. The Boston Massacre set the fear of a standing British army or any standing army in the hearts of the colonists. The passion of the American patriots furthered the cause for the Second Amendment to the Bill of Rights. The colonists also developed a healthy mistrust for standing armies, that is, military forces composed solely of professional soldiers and controlled by a central government. That's according to Gordon Whitkin and Katie Hedder in The Fight to Bear Arms, 1995. The wary view of standing armies can be illustrated by the North Carolina Constitution. The North Carolina Constitution of 1776 states that the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of the state, and as standing armies in time of peace are dangerous to liberty, they ought not to they ought not to be kept up, and that the militia or the military should be kept under strict subordination to and governed by the civil power. If this text is to be taken in its strictest form, the North Carolina Constitution separates a standing army from the military. It further implies that the standing army or professional soldiers controlled by a central government should only be allowed in a time of war. The idea, of the time, the idea at the time the Constitution was written was that if the populace was armed, there would be less need for a standing army. Times have changed since the Constitution was written, and now men are able to fly. Therefore, there is the possible danger of attacks from the air that men on the ground would be defenseless against. Realizing this, I see the need for an Air Force, Navy, and Marines. However, a standing on army on our soil is a thing to be feared by all liberty-loving Americans. And in today's political climate, Christians should be especially wary. The Second Amendment to the United States Constitution states, a well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. There has arisen a controversy due to the wording of the Second Amendment. Who has the right to bear arms? Is it the militia, National Guard, or the people? According to Reader's Digest Great Encyclopedia Dictionary of 1966, a militia is any able-bodied man from the age of 18 to 45 and not currently in the military, who is, however, subject to being called in the event of an emergency. According to Golier Multimedia Encyclopedia of 2005, 
A militia is now what we would call the National Guard. Would there ever be a time when we Americans might need a militia again? Alexander Hamilton wrote in the Federalist Papers about the use of militias, stating that there, were, there may come a time when we need a militia for another state, would need to enter a neighboring state to stop either an insurrection or an invasion. The question remains, to whom does the right to bear arms apply? The militia or the people? This debate was addressed by Bruce Gold, 2002. Gold states that in colonial times, men were nervous about an overpowering federal government. He surmises that this fear made the Second Amendment crucial, not only for a militia, but for the individual. He claims the Founding Fathers saw the need to reassert the individual right to keep and bear arms by including it in certain declaratory and restrictive clauses. The sentiment asserted by Bruce Gold to have guided the crafting of the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution is evident in many of the state constitutions as well. Professor Eugene Volvik has compiled a list of states and amendments and acknowledged the people's right to bear arms. Though these amendments do change from time to time, the intent remains the same. The following states have reaffirmed the wording and their view of the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution. 1776, North Carolina. 1776, Pennsylvania. 1777, Vermont. 1780, Massachusetts. 1792, Kentucky. 1796, Tennessee. 1802, Ohio. 1816, Indiana. 1817, Mississippi. 1818, Connecticut. 1819, Maine. 1819, Alabama. 1820, Missouri. 1835, Michigan. 1836 and 1845, Texas, 1836, Arkansas, 1838, Florida, 1842, Rhode Island, 1857, Oregon, 1859, Kansas, 1865, Georgia, 1876, Colorado, 1879, Louisiana, 1885, Washington, 1889, Wyoming, 1889, South Dakota, 1889, Montana, 1889, Idaho, 1895, South Carolina, 1896, Utah, I hope you get in the picture, 1907, Oklahoma, 1912, Arizona, 1912, New Mexico, 1959, Hawaii, 1959, Alaska, 1970, Illinois, 1971, Virginia, 1982, Nevada, 1982, New Hampshire, 1984, North Dakota, 1986, West Virginia, 1987, Delaware, 1988, Nebraska, 1998, Wisconsin, whew! Of the 50 states that comprise the United States, 44 of them have amendments that secure the right to bear arms. That's 88% of the states in their constitutions. The six states that do not have amendments with the right to bear arms simply refer to the United States Constitution. Though these states support the right to bear arms dating back to the late 1800s, several of them regulated the ownership and transporting of such arms. However, the past two decades have seen a shift in the political landscape. The shift has brought to the forefront a new concept. In more than 26 states, a legal resident who qualifies may obtain a permit to carry a concealed weapon on his or her person. Did this deregulation of armed citizenry create a rise in crime? The short answer is no. As a matter of fact, with deregulation 
has come a decrease in violent crime. During the same period, nations with increasingly restrictive gun laws and regulations are experiencing increasing rates of violent crime. In a study of violent crime and the legal possession of firearms in America versus the more restrictive policies of England and Wales and Australia, we can see the difference between the registering and regulating of firearms and the deregulation of firearms done in America. Violent crime increased in Australia by 166% from 1997 to 2003. When new legislation was passed to regulate the restrictions or the registration and ownership of guns, the homicide rate in England and Wales jumped 50%. The gun crime increased by 35%. The United States stands out in the trends set by these more regulated nations. Violent crime fell by 42% since the introduction of concealed carry laws. These startling statistics have not ended the debate. The Second Amendment to the Constitution continues to be raised as a point of contention. We are told that in most cases, the United States Supreme Court clearly determines the constitutionality of law and actions that are brought before it. However, on the Second Amendment, the Supreme Court has been, for the most part, silent. Even on the case the court has ruled, such as the United States versus Miller, the question of an individual right versus collective rights to bear arms is not sufficiently addressed. The Miller case was a question of registration. Can the government force its citizens to register sawed-off shotguns? Miller won in the lower courts. However, he failed to appear when the federal government took the case to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled in his absence. However, after the ruling, there was still no resolution. In other words, after the ruling, there was no resolution between the individual rights and the collective rights of the people. This has left the question of the Second Amendment to be resolved in the political arena. Did the drafters of the Constitution intend for individual citizens to bear arms, or rather for the government-controlled militia to be the only bearers of the arms? Besides increasing rates of violent crime, what would be the other consequences of disarming the citizenry? Is the rise of crime such as in Australia and England and Wales the only points of statistical relevance, or does history illustrate a more deviant potential? During the Nazi regime of 1930s and early 40s, there was a call for the disarmament of the Jewish population. This disarmament extended not only to the Jews, but to all of the people of Germany and all those of occupied Europe. The registration of gun ownership in the European nations served as a convenient tool to the Nazi party. When the Nazi party entered Czechoslovakia and Poland in 1938, they found it easy to disarm the public due to the national registration of firearms. Robert Jackson, Attorney General of the United States in 1941, asked Congress for a national registration of firearms. Seeing the events in Europe, Congress refused such a request. Though this argument appears far from over, American history, a study of statistics, and world history all illuminate the importance of this issue. Alexander Hamilton wrote of the tendency to relinquish rights due to fear in the Federalist Papers. He wrote, Safety from external danger is the most powerful director of national conduct. Even the ardent love of liberty will, after time, Give, ways to give way to its dictates. The violent destruction of life and property 
incident to war, the continual effect and alarm attendant on a state of continual danger, will compel nations the most attached to liberty to resort for repose and security to institutions which have a tendency to destroy their civil and political rights. To be more safe, they at length become willing to run the risk of being less free. Time has proven Hamilton correct. However, I am one who resents and despises every law that is implemented under the guise of safety, while it steals my freedom. Let me be less safe and more free. Patrick Henry's famous words echo in my heart. Give me liberty or give me death. Benjamin Franklin referred to this type of scenario when he spoke about those that would give up their liberty for security. He stated that people who are willing to make this trade deserve neither liberty nor security. The era of emotional decision-making by those who hold political powers needs to come to an end. The necessity of an armed citizenry is clearly painted by history. Using the events of the past, we have observed the tendency of tyrannies to rise, freedom to be extinguished, and the human spirit to be crushed under the guise of safety and a disarmed public. However, when men and women are allowed to defend themselves and their neighbors by the possession and bearing of arms, tyranny is kept at bay, violent crime subsides, and freedom is preserved. The, founding, the founders fought for and designed our Constitution to maintain a limited government, not shackled citizenry. The founders were less concerned about foreign invaders than they were about the encroachment of our own government on the freedoms of Americans. Freedom itself is a primary reason for an armed public.